For the week of Wednesday, September 26, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk about two initiatives on the November ballot. First, we talk about I-1639, which is called the Safe Schools, Safe Communities Measure aimed at reducing gun violence. And to talk about it, we are joined by Renee Hopkins, CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, and by Stephen Paolini. He is the campaign manager for Yes on 1639. Then we speak with Ahmed Gaya, field director for Yes on 1631, which, if it passes, would be the first voter initiative in the nation to enact a carbon fee on polluters in the state. We also talk with two leaders of Indivisible Wenatchee about their protest on Monday against Wenatchee World publisher Jeff Ackerman and his recent op-ed about the allegations by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford that seemed to trivialize sexual assault. That's all ahead, so stay with us. We talked first this week about the Gun Safety Ballot Measure Initiative 1639, which is also called the Safe Schools, Safe Communities Initiative. And joining us to talk about this, we are happy to welcome back Renee Hopkins. She is the CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. Hello, Renee. Hi there. And we also have with us Stephen Paolini. He is the campaign manager for Yes on 1639. Hello, Stephen. Hey. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So, uh, you know, I want to talk specifically first about what 1639 would do. So according to its verbiage on Ballotopedia, it would implement restrictions on the purchase and ownership of firearms, including raising the minimum age to purchase certain types of firearms to 21. And it would implement background checks, waiting periods, and storage requirements. And I do want to point out what is highlighted on the Yes on 1639 site, which is that these measures are specifically aimed at addressing the root causes of mass shootings. So let's talk specifics. Uh, which types of firearms would be age-restricted for purchase? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I think most of the listeners will know, but in case they don't, there's a federal mandate that handguns, um, especially with concealed um, purchase licenses, but uh, handguns in general, can only be sold to people 21 years and older, recognizing that they um, have an inherent risk that uh, is larger than those of, say, hunting rifles. Um, And so what this really does in terms of the age limit is looks at semi-automatic assault rifles, um, which is the definition that we worked hard on during the legislative process um, and really came to agreement with the, um, with some of our sort of NRA Democrats, um, that this is the best definition for our state. And raising the age of purchase from 18 to 21. So really just bringing that in line with what is already law in Washington state and around the country as it pertains to handguns. And just to be clear, this would not ban purchase of all firearms for people under 21, right? No, absolutely not. Okay. So let's let's talk about background checks and waiting periods. Um, uh, I know that 1639 would also change the current procedure for background checks and waiting periods for semi-automatic weapons. So tell us what would be changed there. Yeah, again, this is just bringing um, in line with our state law for our concealed carry permits, which is basically just requiring that a state-level background check also be done when someone is trying to purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle. What check does is really just give the most recent data on crime and then also accesses a number of other databases that are held at the state level um, that can pertain to uh, involuntary commitments that would prevent someone from being able to purchase a, a firearm in general, um, as well as many um, domestic violence and other uh, laws that, you know, again, wanting to make sure that we have the most up-to-date information in the system. So it's, again, just sort of marrying what we're already doing with the sale and permitting of um, of pistols with semi-automatic assault rifles. Let's just talk about just a couple more things that uh, 1639 would prescribe. Uh, one thing that it does is create standards for dangerous access prevention. And I, I think we know, kind of get the idea of what we're getting at there. But just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, the Alliance for Gun Responsibility has historically worked really hard to ensure that Um, rather than looking at the firearms in the hands of all people that we're really addressing, making sure that firearms don't end up in the hands of the most dangerous people. And dangerous access prevention is a really important component of that. 
Um, what dangerous access prevention does is it does not prescribe um, a specific kind of safe storage, but it encourages safe storage and does so with the possible criminal penalty if a firearm falls into the hands of a prohibited purchaser or a child. And as a result of that, there is harm or death to an individual. So again, it's really, we, we believe that most gun owners are responsible gun owners, and this is just a way to continue the conversation um, to ensure that people who own firearms are taking the necessary precautions to make sure that they don't fall into the wrong hands. Right, right. Uh, you know, uh, 1630 and I would also direct the state to annually check that owners of handguns or semi-automatic rifles are still eligible to possess these weapons. I think this is one of the things that probably concerns gun owners uh, the most. So specifically, talk about how those checks would be conducted. Yeah, so there, we actually have, a, during our implementation process, we'll have a period of time to really drill down into how that's going to work best for Washington state. There are a few states around the country that already do this. And so we'll be looking to those states to see what process will work best for us. Um, But, you know, this is really just to ensure that uh, people who do own firearms have not had a prohibiting issue occur in the last period of time. Right. and that um, if they do so, we would rely on our typical surrender laws that are all already in, um, implemented in our state uh, to make sure that the firearms are no longer in those individuals' hands. And this is really a provision, to, you know, we know that people with um, histories of domestic violence in particular have really, really high likelihood of reoffense. Um, and so just ensuring that those um, individuals that pose the most risk for themselves or others um, are not able to purchase or possess firearms. And this is a, a, a really great way to do so um, and one that's been proven um, through implementation in other states in our country. Well, you know, as I said at the top, um, 1639 is chiefly aimed at addressing mass shootings. Um, And so, uh, Stephen, let's bring you into this conversation to talk about some of those statistics. Uh, What are some current statistics on mass shootings that we have, and how will the measures uh, prescribed in 1639 help? Uh, I I would just start with a very chilling stat that you have on the site about uh, the 20 years since Columbine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really important when we when we talk about these stats and the data around gun violence is it's especially since Parkland, uh, the voices of young folks who are sort of standing up and, and saying, you know, my generation, more than anything else, you know, more than the iPhone, more for, more than the new millennia uh, is is defined by gun violence. Uh, I'm 22 years old. And in my lifetime, uh, over 200,000 students have been impacted by school shootings. Mm. And that number virtually ensures uh, that my peers and I know of somebody who, you know, was shot or whose parents or whose family was shot. Um, I grew up in in Orlando, Florida and and moved up to Washington State about two years ago. And so that's, you know, my community has been rocked over and over and over again by gun violence. Can I just pause uh, for a moment and just sort of ask you anecdotally, because this is something that we hear of people of your generation about the fact that they've grown up with gun violence as, as a reality, as just a really frightening reality in their lives. And particularly since the Parkland shootings, you've seen a lot of students, uh, people of student yeah. age become really, really energized around electoral politics. Are you seeing that? And are I guess yeah. the, the question that I would ask is, are you seeing a lot of people in your cohort who are single-issue voters who are voting around issues yeah. like gun safety. Yeah, well, broadly speaking, the data shows that folks in my generation not only do they support gun violence prevention uh, in a supermajority of folks in my generation, but they also rank it as one of the more important issues in deciding who to vote for. In fact, uh, we we did some modeling uh, and research specific to this campaign, asking that question, and really the highest category of voters that both you know, predominantly support this issue and rank it as very important in deciding what kind of candidate to vote for are folks in that age of 18 to 35, and in particular, young women. Mm. And this campaign's done a great job of engaging student leaders um, all across the state of Washington. I was just uh, on Saturday in 
in Spokane with a young woman, uh, Dharma Hoy, who's there working on multiple uh, local legislative races as well as congressional races. And she sort of shared her perspective and her story and, and how her and some of her peers, you know, going to school for back to school for the first time this year and having to engage in, you know, active shooter drills and um, a young woman that, you know, had an anxiety attack, uh, sort of reliving some of the trauma that she's seen on television that she's had to experience herself uh, going through those trainings and, and having to confront that and and having to figure out, you know, what can we do to do something about it, right? And, you know, frankly, the legislature had a, had a crack at this initiative. They could have passed it. They should have passed it. And so folks in my generation are saying, like, this is something that's def- that defines us. Um, yeah. And we're not going to stand by and let the next generation be defined by it, right? I'm not going to let the next 22 years of my life also be defined by another 200,000 students impacted by gun violence. Well, it's very encouraging that we are, are seeing a, a real groundswell around this issue and that uh, it's not an easy task to get an initiative on the ballot. It takes over 300,000 uh, validated signatures. So obviously there's groundswell around this. And, you know, I, I should mention that while mass shootings tend to be what gets the bulk of media attention when they happen, and, and Renee, I'll bring you back in for this, mass shootings are not the only type of gun violence that 1639 is aimed at preventing, right? No, it's absolutely not. And thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, You know, we know that in our country, mass shootings get a disproportionate level of attention um, when talking about gun violence. But really, interpersonal violence and suicides um, make up the, the vast majority of gun violence um, and interpersonal, including um, domestic violence. And so this, um, this initiative is actually aimed at uh, all of those types of gun violence and really uh, recognizing that there's intersection between a number of different kinds of gun violence. And I think it's really important for people to understand that um, nationally, nearly two-thirds of deaths from firearm are suicide. In our state, that's sadly even higher um, upwards of 75% of firearm deaths are suicide. And so the, the um, dangerous access prevention and safe storage component of this policy is really vital, both in school shootings, but also in suicide prevention um, and in our personal violence. And I think, you know, we would be remiss not to really draw attention to the fact that uh, while schools, um, school shootings feel like a very scary thing to um, everyone in our society, that a, a lot of people um, feel just as scared walking to and from school or even more scared than they do in school. And so I think um, recognizing that, um, especially in black and brown communities across our country and definitely in our state, um, that the violence is not solely happening in schools and that um, this initiative is really um, focused on all aspects of gun violence, not just school shootings and mass shootings. Yeah, that's uh, an enormously important to bring up that it disproportionately, gun violence disproportionately affects uh, communities of color. I I, want to talk about some of the pushback against 1639, particularly the lawsuits that were filed against the measure. Uh, And I want to talk about the two that were filed by the NRA uh, who petitioned to get 1639 removed from the ballot. Uh, On August 17th, a Superior Court judge in Thurston County ruled in favor of the NRA, uh, but then the Alliance for Gun Responsibility appealed. And then on August 24th, the Washington Supreme Court reversed the lower court's ruling, allowing the initiative to stay on the November 2018 ballot. Renee, what was the legal argument that the Alliance for Gun Responsibility successfully put forth on appeal? Yeah, I mean, the basis of the legal argument that we put forward was um, a clear, clear mandate from the voting population in Washington state Um, that 1639 should be on the ballot. We set a record in terms of actually gathering signatures. We gathered um, hundreds of thousands of signatures in a matter of three and a half weeks, which had never been done before. Um, We also had the most volunteer um, signatures gathered in that short of a period of time, just showing the absolute mandate again from the mm-hmm. from the voting population of Washington State um, that really wants to be able to vote on um, on responsible gun laws, including Initiative 1639. 
What we know about our opposition, um, the gun lobby, is that what scares them the absolute most is letting the people have their say because they know that the people are not with them. The people are on the side of common sense gun laws. Mm -hmm. And so their strategy is to, um, and this is not just true in Washington state, but it's been especially true in Washington state this year, is to try to silence the will of the people. Um, and they do that by um, working closely within the um, legislature um, to try to ensure that they have a majority there, which we're definitely chipping away at and hopefully will do so even more this year. And then they also do so um, through litigation. And so having them actually sue us is not a huge surprise. And, you know, we felt confident knowing that the Washington State Supreme Court is on the side of the people having their say. Um, and we feel really great about the fact that the um, Washington State voters will have their say in November. Well, you know, speaking of, of the NRA, um, Stephen, I, I know that uh, 1639 has outraised uh, your opponents, people opposed to it, by just a, a staggering margin. Uh, I'll direct people to the Ballotopedia site if they want to see for themselves. And obviously you've had some pretty high-profile donors uh, who have contributed. Um, but I'm wondering if both – and I'll direct this question to both of you, if you were surprised by the imbalance in your favor, particularly since one of the opposition's key funding sources is the NRA. Stephen, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things to remember here is that the National Rifle Association sort of has a catch-22 in directly communicating with voters. And, you know, the more money they spend, the more they put themselves out there, uh, they, they just don't have compelling messages. And they don't actually have compelling messengers. But they right. do have Voters a lot of money, and I think that's what I, is that's sort of what I'm getting at. Yeah, but the, the question ultimately has to be asked, no matter how much you have, if you don't have a compelling reason why not to vote for 1639, is it worth spending it? Uh, and I think that's what they're ultimately having to deal with. In addition, right, if it comes from the NRA especially, voters have started to take a look at that and say, you know what? We don't, we don't believe the lies that the National Rifle Association are saying. They're not a good messenger for their already not compelling messages. Mes- messages. Well, so, do, Renee, do you agree with that? Is, is it the NRA just kind of reading the tea leaves in? Well, I mean, I think it could be that. I think we're also seeing um, the NRA coming under a lot of fire lately um, in terms of, you know, many different questionable choices that they have made in terms of who they're backing and how they're raising money to back them. Um, You know, I I do think one important thing to point out here, though, is we make a really clear distinction when we talk about the NRA and the gun lobby in general, um, is that the, the NRA and the gun lobby really are there to represent the industry. And we know from our own research that NRA members Um, should really be looked at differently and that most NRA members, um, the majority of NRA members in our state actually want common sense gun laws, which is a really important fact to point out that distinguishes them um, from the organization that says they actually represent them. And so I just think that's an important piece to pull out there. Um, you know, this is just sort of moving into November, uh, and this is a, a difficult question to ask, uh, and I'm, I figure that it's one that both of you uh, consider often. Uh, with the news cycle being as chaotic as it is under a president like uh, Donald Trump, how do you keep the urgency of gun safety on voters' minds? Stephen? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've I've just been on I just finished up our statewide campaign press tour where I was in, in Vancouver and Olympia and Tacoma last weekend. And this weekend I was in Yakima and Spokane and Squim. And we actually, you know, we had such an outpouring of support. I mean, we were packing rooms all across the state of Washington and, and rural, you know, consider, you know, normally more conservative places as, as well in liberal centers. And and so I. I actually do question this a little bit. Uh, I think the urgency is there. What we've seen in in the research and in the polling and in the data is, especially after Parkland, more and more people have have said enough is enough, and they've stayed there, right? In the past, we've seen we've seen folks fall off after a couple of weeks, and, and I hate to describe it like that, but that's just the way it's been. 
Uh, but since Parkland, and especially when young folks are at the center of the movement, and we've really, really made an effort to amplify the voices of students. At each of those places I mentioned, we had local students from local high schools come and speak and lead the press conference. And I think that has been able to continue to sort of galvanize the momentum and catch this, this particularly important moment, this lightning in a bottle. And it really is about when young voices are at the forefront of, of the conversation, folks stay longer and they listen longer. And that urgency, as you described, uh, continues. Well, I think that's uh, incredibly encouraging. Renee? Yeah, and I think I would add to that that, you know, um, while we now have young voices really um, helping center this conversation, I think what we really actually have now is a multi-generational um, voice. Mm-hmm. We have, um, you know, in Washington State, we have Grandmothers Against Gun Violence. We have Moms Demand Action. We have the Alliance, um, who really works hard to pull everyone together. And the bottom line is, is that we have multiple generations, all generations, <laughs> within our society now demanding that we have responsible gun laws. And so while we we do have this very, very important addition of youth, it's the addition of youth to the others that have been there. And, and, And so it's really across society, across age groups, across demographics, across political leanings. Um, people are done and they are demanding responsible gun laws. And we're seeing that not just in our work with initiatives, but also in the work that the Alliance is doing and the campaign is doing um, to ensure that we are also electing people that just basically reflect the will of their constituents and the will of constituents across Washington state and honestly across the country is for responsible gun laws. And so it's it's an amazing thing since Parkland to see that that consistent um, call across generations and again across all of those demographics that I just mm-hmm. talked about is um, is remaining. And, you know, I think the other thing to remember is that just because we're not maybe seeing um, a call for gun violence reform um, in the news cycle every day, that does not mean that on the ground, the swell of energy and voices is not staying consistent because it is. Well, you guys have been out there on the front lines, and so you would know. I've, I've followed your Twitter feed, and like uh, Stephen said, you're, you, you've been out all across the state. You've been uh, meeting with people, and, and it, it seems like you're getting not only an enthusiastic uh, reception, but a large one as well. Um, Renee, I'll just ask you, if 1639 passes in November, what is the implementation process going to be like? Uh, how long until it goes into effect? Yeah, that's a really good question, Stefan. And um, one thing that we've learned is we've passed um, laws, both through the initiative process and through the legislative process historically, is that implementa- passing laws is one thing, and it's a really important hurdle, but implementation is really where the rubber meets the road. Mm. Um, so the, the components of um, Initiative 1639 that mirror the um, pieces of, of law that are already in place for handguns will go into effect fairly quickly. Um, within a number of, I, I think it's within a number of like 90 days. But we have a year implementation process for the other pieces that are new components to ensure that we get it right. And again, like I've said, we um, have learned from uh, past laws that have been passed and our really important work that our foundation does um, to work with um, stakeholders throughout the system to ensure that laws are implemented per their intent. And we plan to do the same thing with Initiative 1639, again, building on the implementation work that we've already done in various parts of our state and will continue to do across the state um, with this law as well. Well, it's, uh, you know, and I I assume that you're also going to be uh, looking at the way that other states have rolled out uh, similar uh, regulations that you you talked about earlier on. Um, Stephen, I will just end on you here. Uh, How can people get involved or help out with the campaign? Yeah, thank you so much. Obviously, uh, we have, you know, our, our website and our social media, which is all under yeson1639.org and on Facebook, yeson1639. We are really going to go everywhere in the state. Um, we're going to do everything we can to reach voters. And, and I really want to emphasize that because this is 
some of what we fought for. And Renee, I know you mentioned the number of signatures before. We collected over 378,000 signatures in 25 days. Wow. Right? That's, that's 15,000 signatures. That's extraordinary. That's one signature every six seconds. Wow. It, it's, it's an absurd, monumental lift. But what I really want to emphasize with that, right, is it we don't actually win anything because of that. All we get is an opportunity. And the next 40 days is what that is that opportunity is, is what we earned by working day and night over those 25 days to get this on the ballot. And it, and it gives me the chance to go everywhere in the state and knock on doors and make phone calls. It gives me the chance with donations to pay to, to send people mail, to be on TV, to go on radio. I mean, we know that when voters understand what this initiative is, that they support it and that when Washington votes, that they support this measure and that they support really common sense stuff that's going to keep our schools and communities safe. So if you have a desire to get involved, um, go onto our website, go onto our social media, offer to volunteer, get engaged with our direct voter contact. We'll be writing postcards, knocking on doors, making phone calls, you know, share our, our live streams when we're out in Spokane and Squim and Vancouver and all over the state. Um, donate money, right? Uh, there is, now you mentioned that we raised a lot of money uh, but there's a real and substantial, you know, gap with where we want to be over the next 40 days with with the money that we've raised. And the difference is making sure that we're on TV, making sure that we're in people's mailboxes and we're on radio, that we have the resources we need to go knock on doors all across the state of Washington. We don't take our position for granted. Uh, and it's because we fought so hard to get here. Um, and we really only have, I mean, we have 40 days to reach as many voters as possible, to turn them out to vote, to convince them to support this initiative, but also to have an open and honest conversation about why their elected officials didn't pass this to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, all of those different ways, volunteer, donate, share our stuff on social media, follow us on Twitter uh, as we go across the state of Washington and, and talk to everyone everywhere. Um, and listen to this podcast because it's got great information <laughs> well, about, thank you very um, much. about all of these issues. Well, I will make sure to uh, to put uh, all of the information that you just talked about on IndivisiblePodcast.org. Uh, the initiative is 1639. Renee Hopkins and Stephen Pellini, thank you both so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. So next, we discuss Initiative 1631, which, if it passes, would charge polluters for the right to emit carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the environment. And joining us to discuss this is Amit Gaia. He is field director for I-1631, and we are very happy to have him back on the show. Hi, Amit. Um, I'm Stefan. Happy to be here. So, uh, you know, first, just give us an idea of the scale of the problem here in Washington, because I think with the exception of Centralia, we're not a big coal producing state. I think a lot of people tend to think of Washington as being pretty green. So give us an idea of how bad the industrial production of greenhouse gases is here. Well, and the first thing I'd say, Stefan, is this is about pollution, about our health, and about expanding clean energy. We know that Washingtonians are already impacted by pollution. I think we saw the impacts of climate change, the impacts of air pollution uh, this summer uh, yeah. and last summer, uh, even here in Seattle in terms of the massive wildfires, and even without the smoke that is you know, choking us out and making it hard, uh, stealing our summers and making it mm. hard for us to even go outside. Even without that, Washington was already experiencing a number of days of elevated air pollution on the western side and even more out on the eastern side every year. Uh, and that pollution uh, is heavily experienced by communities of color and lower income communities in our state. We know that the people who face pollution the most are those who have contributed the least to it, folks in places like South King County or in Metro Tacoma, uh, and folks out in the eastern side of the state who face even more severe impacts um, from forest fires and climate impacts and impacts to their water. Uh, so, I mean, even though we think of Washington as a clean and green state, we still suffer the impacts of pollution, and we know that those impacts will only get worse if we don't take action. Right, and it's disproportionate, as you say, but so where is the industrial production of greenhouse gases coming from? 
Yeah, well, there are a lot of different sources of pollution. The biggest polluters in our state right now are the oil companies and utilities that are not, specifically climate pollution, the oil companies and utilities that are not switched over to clean energy yet. Uh, many of our utilities in the state have, but those that are still building, uh, pardon me, uh, still burning gas, that are still relying on coal, both the plant in Centralia and from out in um out in Montana, um, and that's the, the biggest contributor to the problem. And uh, in Washington State, one of our biggest problems is transportation. We don't have the kind of efficient and clean transportation networks across our state that we need, and we need to make major investments in that. Well, I want to talk about where the money from 1631 would go in just a second, but first let's talk about if it passes what 1631 would require. How much would polluters have to pay for carbon emissions? Yeah, so just the first overview is that 1631 is a practical first step to deal with pollution and expand clean energy across Washington. It puts a fee on the largest corporate polluters in the state, and it reinvests that into clean energy, um, cleaning up pollution and protecting our natural resources. And I want to put a point on something that you're saying by you're, you're specifically using the term fee and not tax, and that's important, right? Well, that's legally what it does. Uh, and the big distinction here is that a fee, uh, the revenue from a fee must be spent on addressing the problem that the fee is established to address. So that revenue has to be spent on those things that I said. It has to be spent on cleaning up pollution, on expanding clean energy, and on protecting our natural resources from the impacts that we're facing from pollution, things like these massive wildfires, impacts to our water, etc. cetera. Uh, and so the revenue can't be directed in other places. It is actually, that's a really strong accountability mechanism. Right, and so just to, to be very clear about this, uh, uh, polluters would have to pay, major polluters from like fossil fuel companies would have to pay $15 for every ton of carbon dioxide that they release into the atmosphere. Uh, and as we just uh, were alluding to, the state estimates is this, this would generate a lot of money, uh, $2.2 billion in the first five years. This would take effect in 2020, uh, and it would increase by $2 every year plus inflation. Um, so you've alluded to this a little bit, but talk in specifics now about where this money would go. Yeah, so 70% of the revenue goes to expanding clean energy and reducing pollution across the state. Uh, 25% of the revenue goes to protecting our natural resources, particularly investing in our forests and better forest management and investing in our water resources. And then 5% of the revenue goes to protecting communities that are particularly impacted. Uh, for example, there are communities out in eastern Washington which are under perpetual risk from forest fires or drought conditions. And so some of that revenue would go into protecting them. And then there are some communities on our coast, uh, like, for example, uh, the Quinault Nation's entire community, which will have to be relocated in the next 10 years because of rising seas and eroding coastline. Um, so uh, some of the revenue could go to support those communities. But the bulk, as I said, 70 percent goes into expanding clean energy and reducing pollution. So if this bill passes in November, is there any more action that would be required by the state legislature to implement it in 2020? So not necessarily the legislature. Uh, an initiative to the people in Washington is a really powerful uh, policymaking tool that we have uh, as the citizens of Washington state uh, to actually, when the legislature fails to act, write our own laws by the will of the people. And we know that action on cleaning up pollution, action on clean energy, and action on climate here in Washington are extremely popular. The people of Washington want to see this action, and that's why when after year after year our legislature failed to take action to to address pollution adequately, we brought this initiative forward uh, and are confident that the people of Washington will vote it in. Uh, what does need to happen after it's passed is a rulemaking process to exactly define the implementation of it. And we will engage in that rulemaking process afterwards. But legislatively, once the initiative is passed, that's one of the powers that we as the people of Washington have is to bring laws directly up for a vote and we'll get to vote on it. And when we do pass it, it will go into effect. Okay. Well, you know, I want to talk about 
a little bit about why 1631 is different. And we uh, sort of touched on this earlier between the uh, difference between a carbon fee and a carbon tax. And the state put up a carbon tax initiative in 2016. This was I-732, and it failed. Um, So talk about uh, some of the differences between 732 and what is being proposed with 1631. I mean, the biggest difference is that 1631 is supported by the largest and most diverse coalition, not only to back an environmental initiative uh, in Washington state, but to back any initiative in the history of Washington state. So it involves um, everyone from the nature groups you'd expect, like the Nature Conservancy and the Sierra Club, health advocates like the American Lung Association, um, Virginia Mason Hospital System, uh, businesses like REI and Vigor Shipyard, Uh, some non-traditional businesses you might not expect that want to be a part of the clean energy economy, and over 60 community of color organizations and organizations representing low-income communities. It's over 250 trusted voices. And then I would be want, if I didn't note, the strong participation of Washington's tribal communities. Many tribal nations have endorsed uh, their leaders who sit on the PAC board of Initiative 1631 and the affiliate tribes of Northwest Indians who have formally endorsed and put a lot of resources and support behind the initiative. Nowhere before in Washington state or really, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe anywhere in the country have we seen a coalition like this that has emerged behind action for clean energy, for cleaning up pollution, uh, and really on almost any issue. So what we're doing in Washington uh, is truly historic, and it's coming at an, an urgent time. We know if we don't take action action in the next few years. We don't take action now. Climate pollution is only going to get significantly worse. So this coalition is a model that we're showing the nation this is how you can bring together the kind of force that both can chart out the solution, because to make the kinds of changes we need to deal with pollution, we do need to involve everybody, both in deciding how we're going to make the transition off of fossil fuels and in implementing that transition, and how we stand up against the oil industry. Because once again, the only people on the other side of the aisle that are putting money in are the oil industry. They have now, as of today, contributed over $20 million to the No on 1631 campaign, and they make up more than 99% of the funding going to the No on 1631 campaign is from just five out-of-state oil companies. So they are the richest and most powerful industry in the history of money and the history of humanity. (laughs) Uh, And to stand up to them, it is going to take everyone coming together. Uh, And that's what we're doing here in Washington state. Uh, And that's why people around the country are looking to Washington, to the model and example we're setting. Uh, And this is the fight, you know, it's going to be a fight of our lives. It's really important uh, that everyone get involved and do everything they can, because that's the only way we're going to win. Well, you know, so since you bring up the oil concern, um, I do want to sort of get into one of the key arguments that they are going to be levying uh, against 1631, which is that charging these polluters will result in them passing on the cost to consumers. Uh, The nonpartisan think tank Resources for the Future estimates that in 2020, the price of gas would likely rise by 13 cents a gallon and the price of home heating oil would rise by 15 cents a gallon. So how does 1631 respond to that? Well, the first thing I would direct people to do is point out this is bullying from out-of-state oil industries that are trying to interfere in our election here in Washington state. We've been paying for their pollution uh, for decades, and they have had no accountability for the pollution that they're putting into our atmosphere, into our lungs, into our water, and they always fight to stop any accountability for themselves uh, in the legislature and on the ballot, and they use the same line every time, that this is going to hurt consumers, that they really care about the little guys here in Washington. And the reason they're spending that money is because they know that this is a fee on their profits and that they are going to lose profits if this goes into effect because they'll be held accountable for their pollution. Well, certainly they could uh, absorb the costs of this. And that's kind of one of the, the ironies about all of this is that, you know, they have extraordinarily deep pockets. They don't have to pass along the fees that would be in 
imposed under 1631 to consumers. I would say they they can't pass them all along. They wouldn't be spending. If they could pass all of the costs along, they wouldn't be sending now tens of millions of dollars to oppose it. The only reason they would do that is because this is going to impact them at the pocketbook. And the truth is the average family in Washington isn't going to see a greater impact than $10 a month. And for $10 a month or less to the average family, we get probably tens of millions in healthcare savings. We help create over 40,000 new clean energy jobs, and we leave a healthier, cleaner, and more prosperous future for our kids and grandkids, holding the oil companies accountable for the pollution they're giving us. Well, let me ask you this, Ahmet, because you're the field director, so you're out there on the front lines. Is this message that you're, that you're talking about here, is, is this connecting with voters that you're speaking with? Yeah, so we've knocked on over 40,000 doors. We've made over 20,000 phone calls. And we got out and we gathered petition signatures from over 370,000 people. Right, in order to get it on the ballot, yeah. In order to get on the ballot. Um, And doing all that has been over 2,500 volunteers now across the state of Washington. It's truly an amazing movement. Uh, Tens of thousands of volunteer hours have gone into doing this. And we're seeing overwhelming support from the people of Washington. We know Washingtonians want to take action on pollution. We know they want more clean energy, and they want clean energy to be more affordable, which is one of the big things that 1631 will do. But we also know that the oil companies, as of today, have spent over $20 million uh, trying to spread misinformation and uh, deceptive information about this initiative to try and take it down. And that's going to make a big impact. That's a huge amount of money. um, And they are running a very slick PR campaign uh, trying to distract people that that is all coming from the oil industry. So it's going to be a close election. And at the end of the day, Even though people want this, it's going to be a close election. And what's going to make the difference is the passion of individual people getting out there and having real conversations with people at the door, on the phone, uh, over text message, all the different tactics we're using. And that's what the oil companies are not doing. They're sending mailers. They're running TV ads. But at the end of the day, when we win through real conversations, that just shows that when people really sit down and they talk to their neighbors about this, this is something they want. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, the the $20 million is an extraordinary amount of money that the oil companies are throwing at this. But the polling is very much in your favor, right? Uh, According to a Yale University poll, an average of 69% of Washingtonians actually support a carbon tax, not just a carbon fee. And then uh, environmental advocate uh, Bill McKibben was just quoted in this morning's crosscut uh, saying that he thinks that 1631 has a real shot. So all this has to be very encouraging, right? Absolutely. And I want to make no mistake. Like, I also believe that we can win this and that we have the movement that's necessary to win. I think one of the big differences both here as opposed to around other parts of the country and in other years is the historic coalition that has come together behind this. Well, you know, I actually should point out that uh, one of the players in the coalition that you didn't mention earlier is labor. You actually got labor as part of your coalition in this. Well, and, and I apologize. The coalition is so large, sometimes I forget to mention partners. I should also <laughs> mention that Indivisible has endorsed uh, 1631. Uh, but, yeah, and Indivisible makes uh, perfect sense in this coalition, but Labor, uh, maybe not so much. So uh, that's pretty remarkable, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, over 60 percent of the Washington State Labor Council has supports the from the unions representing over 60 percent of the membership of the Washington State Labor Council support Initiative 1631. Many unions are actively participating in the coalition and engaging. Why do you suppose that is? It's because unions know and working people know that the economy of the future is the clean energy economy and that we need they need to be involved in building and shaping that economy uh, and building and shaping that has the opportunity to build a more prosperous and a stronger Washington. And many of the working people that are represented by these unions uh, are people of lower incomes who are disproportionately impacted by pollution and feel those health costs 
in their pocketbooks and so really have a vested interest in seeing pollution in their community cleaned up and seeing a better and healthier Washington for their kids and grandkids. So it's both things. It's one, they're the people who are facing the front of pollution right now. And then two, they're the people that stand the most to benefit from the clean energy economy we're building. Once again, helping create over 40,000 new clean energy jobs here in Washington state. So if this uh, becomes law, uh, this initiative could be one of the first of its kind in the U.S. where voters have successfully passed a law that forces uh, polluters to pay. Uh, I think only California has tougher laws, and I believe those were passed by the state government. So if 1631 passes, I imagine that uh, you all hope uh, and anticipate that other states' uh, voters might follow suit. Not only the first place in the United States, but it will be the first place in the world where voters required the biggest polluters to pay for their climate pollution and to be held accountable in this way. So it's not only the eyes of the United States that are on Washington state, but the eyes of the world. And people are looking to see. Um, We have not seen – we set – targets for cleaning up climate pollution about a decade ago here in Washington state. And our legislature, like many legislatures around the country, have taken no action to actually meet those targets and enforce them. And that's why the people have had to stand up and bring this initiative forward, um, because we haven't seen legislative leadership in Olympia. And we know it's popular, which is why we know we're going to win. And we do hope what we are showing to the world is a model for how we actually deal with this problem and build the just transition from a fossil fuel economy to a clean energy economy. And that model is you bring everyone to the table and you build these historic coalitions uh, that both can write the right plan and can also have the power to stand up to the incredibly powerful interests, particularly the oil companies and fossil fuel companies that are going to fight with everything they've got to stop the clean energy future from coming. But, you know, Ahmed, I just have to say your uh, enthusiasm for this is incredibly infectious. And so if people want to get involved, if they want to volunteer, uh, where can they go? Absolutely. So the best place for folks to go is yeson1631.org forward slash events. You can get plugged right in. You'll see a map with over 250 canvases and phone banks that we are running all over in every corner of the state of Washington every week. And you can RSVP for an event directly. You can also sign up at yeson1631.org forward slash volunteer, and you'll get a call within 24 hours from an organizer or volunteer plugging you into an event. We are once again going to win this election on the ground in the conversations that we have. By October 15th, we're going to have 75,000 conversations with voters about this initiative. Uh, And then we are going to run one of the largest uh, turnout operations uh, here in Western Washington, in Spokane, in places um, that don't have, some of the places in particular that don't have competitive congressional races to motivate people to vote. So while we know there's a lot of things your listeners are really excited about in this election, if you live in Seattle, if you live in some parts of Tacoma, uh, some parts of Whatcom County, you might not have uh, a lot of competitive races that are motivating you to vote in. We need to get out and knock on your door and let you know that your vote still really matters in this election and could make the difference in it. Uh, So, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I really hope that people uh, get involved with that. And they can also sign up at yesn1631.org forward slash volunteer to volunteer full time for the last three, two, or one week of the election, uh, those full-time commitments make a big difference. Yeah, this is definitely go time right now, and I will have all that information for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. But again, Ahmed Gaya, man, it's uh, great to talk to you again. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for sharing all this great information, and uh, thank you for all your work. Thank you, Stefan. And it's it's really wonderful to have been able to talk about this last year and talk about it now. This has been a long process that got us to this point, and we have less than 40 days before Election Day, and everything that has gotten to this point hinges on what we do in the next 40 days. So I ask people that are listening to do everything you can. Thanks, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you. 
And finally this week, the publisher of the Wenatchee World newspaper, Jeff Ackerman, recently put out an editorial criticizing the allegations that have been made against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, appearing to minimize the crime of sexual assault by equating it with losing your car keys or cheating at golf. In protest, Indivisible Wenatchee organized a gathering on Monday morning in front of the Wenatchee World offices with approximately 100 people showing up in solidarity. This was done in coordination with the nationwide walkout in support of Dr. Ford. And right now we are joined by two of the organizers of the protest, both of whom are leaders with Indivisible Wenatchee, Suellen Harris and Leo Isola. Hello to you both. Hi there. Hi, Stefan. So, uh, Suellen, let's start with you. Where did the idea come from to coordinate Monday's walkout with a protest at the Wenatchee World? Well, on Saturday, the day before the editorial was published, uh, we had posted in our on our Indivisible site the narrow pro-choice walkout moment of solidarity that was going to be happening at 10 a.m. on Monday, Pacific yep. time. And so people were responding to that. And then when we had read the editorial and people were so furious about the editorial, a number suggested that we should do the protest on Monday in front of the Wenatchee World offices. And so then we quickly put up an event and got people um, aware. Uh, A number of people were concerned with the time, 10 a.m., because so many were at work, but we wanted to do it in solidarity with this moment of that Narrell was doing. Yeah, and you had a good turnout. There were about 100 people uh, who showed up uh, dressed in black, um, which was uh, what was prescribed with the uh, the Narrell walkout. Uh, Lael, give, give me an idea of what the response was like to the protest from, say, like passers-by on the sidewalk or, or people driving by. Were people generally supportive? It felt like people were generally supportive. We've had a, a variety of responses to the different Uh, protests that we've had uh, throughout the last year, year and a half. And I feel like over time, they've become more supportive. But uh, on this particular demonstration, we had several honks, um, a lot of people seeming to be in support. And I didn't see anybody give any negative reactions at all. Um, This time when um, a police officer came out to chat with us, uh, he was extremely courteous and made the point right away that he wasn't there to um, he didn't have a problem with what we were doing. And so, well, no one from the Wenatchee world besides their reporter and photographer came out to talk mm. to us. Um, it uh, it felt generally supportive or at least we didn't feel any. I didn't feel any negative. Response. No, no. And in fact, uh, a, a one person who was walking by said, this seems more like a party than a protest. Mm. And I think it was because we were all so glad to have an opportunity to be together to express our opinion that it, it might have conveyed itself that way, although there was a great deal of angst going on mm-hmm. toward um, the paper. And we at one time uh, directed our voices upward to the editorial offices shouting, shouting retract, Ackerman, mm-hmm. retract. Um, still no one came out. We, we learned later that the corporate offices actually had representatives at the world that day. Um, and we neither saw, uh, we neither officially saw or heard from them either. Well, you know, I want to uh, ask you about, uh, Suellen, about an email that Indivisible Wenatchee sent directly to Jeff Ackerman about the editorial. Can you just briefly summarize what that email said? I, I sure can. It's very short, so I'll actually just read it to oh, you because great. It's just a paragraph. We, the undersigned, request request that WIC Communications reprimand Jeff Ackerman for his September 23rd, 2018 editorial trivializing sexual assault. Mr. Ackerman's comparison of a sexual assault upon a 15-year-old girl to cheating at golf, opening presents before Christmas, or losing the car keys is so outrageous and potentially harmful to young women everywhere that it merits the sternest response. The boys, girls, men, women of Chelan, Douglas, and Okanagan counties deserve an apology for this insult to, among other things, our intelligence. And I should mention that WIC Communications is the parent company of the Wenatchee World. And so um, I understand that uh, Ackerman sent back a response. What did he say? 
he did. This is how he responded. What sexual attack? Did I miss a trial or actual evidence? Because you say something doesn't make it so. Accusations without evidence is sufficient to ruin a man's reputation. What a scary system. Sounds an awful lot like a witch hunt. Best with your efforts, Jeff. Well, witch hunt. We've, we know we've heard that yeah. before. And then I also mm-hmm. understand that uh, Michael Nash, who uh, is the leader of uh, NCW United, which is also an indivisible group, uh, also received uh, a pretty uh, provocative response from, from Ackerman as well, right? Oh, very provocative. Uh, this was the response that Mike Nash got. I'm 67, too old to play your childish games. I've had a wonderful life and career, raised two daughters in the process, worked with hundreds of women over my 40-year career, served my country with honor. I don't need to justify myself to you or anyone. I won't even respond to your insulting questions. Best for the day, Jeff. Hmm. You know, I, I think most people uh, who live in Washington know that Wenatchee is is largely a Republican. But I'm just wonder, sort of wondering anecdotally from both of you, um, both what you're hearing about this editorial and what you're hearing about the, the Kavanaugh nomination uh, in general from people there. Uh, Lael? Well, I think typically uh, we hear a lot from both sides here. I don't think we're – well, we're traditionally known as very Republican, but what we've seen in the last – uh, well, since the election is that um, we're a little less solidly Republican, or at least as defined by what Republican means uh, today, um, than we've thought. And that's why uh, Invisible has meant so much to us is because those um, we've found each other and now we feel more um, as the strength of the community of of people that we didn't know before who felt the same way that we did. And yeah. so we've seen... Uh, a lot of comments both um, on both sides. I, I think there, there's <laughs> there's generally um, support for both sides, but the difference is that now those of us who have issues with um, the Kavanaugh process and and the Ackerman editorial are much more likely to object and to uh, raise up our voices and stand together and um, and object to it and have some real. Um, some real power in doing so. In the beginning, when when Indivisible uh, began here in Wenatchee, and we were doing some big things and having forums and having candidates in, and we were um, asking the media to come and uh, sending out press releases and, and inviting them to come and cover what we were doing, and they just simply didn't show up. And at this last, um, well, we've seen a change throughout time, and at this protest the other day, there were five outlets, yeah. five yeah. outlets, the one, all the ones that I know of that are in Wenatchee um, were there. Yeah. And I think that's a real, that really shows that um, we're moving in the right direction and that we're um, being taken seriously and people are finding each other. Yeah, I think it speaks to the power of uh, the indivisible movement uh, uh, generally and, and specifically in places uh, where it's largely been a Republican strongholds. Uh, bringing people together and, and forming that sense of community has just been so, so essential. Um, you know, I've heard of a number of people on social media who are talking about canceling their subscriptions to the Wenatchee world. Have you heard uh, about a number of, of people who have done this? Have I Either of you do either of you have subscriptions? Did you cancel them, uh, Swellen? I I have a subscription to the world that I've had forever. Um, I think it's important to have um, a connection with a local paper. I think it's really good citizenship to do so. But we are definitely um, seeing cancel cancelization. I can't even say it. <laughs> canceling subscriptions. Um, in fact, in today's um, Wenatchee world itself, right, the very first letter in the safety valve, which is where readers respond, um, and one of our members who says she's been a subscriber since 2001 said that she is canceling her subscription to the world based on the atrocious Kavanaugh editorial. Oh. And we, I think I've seen at least 10 of our members who have canceled. One walked in during the protest, just walked right into the counter and canceled it. Um, while we were there. So yes, we are seeing that. Well, you know, I should point out that um, a local high school newspaper, The Apple Leaf, put out an editorial in support of Dr. Ford. And so uh, you guys have made sort of an interesting call uh, along those lines to uh, to The Apple Leaf, right? 
Yes, um, we suggested if if you cancel the world, subscribe to the leaf because the apple leaf it really does provide some good local news, especially about education issues, school board events, and so on, and uh, controversial events. Um, and we think they are a good news source. Great. They, they had an editorial yesterday um, based on having seen our protest. And they quoted one of their, well, they, they told the story of one of their um, reporters who had been assaulted as an 11-year-old. And several of our members said after having read that editorial, they wept. Mm. And, and it was a powerful piece. Well, that's not something that uh, I think a lot of people are maybe accustomed to seeing from a high school newspaper, so it really sounds extraordinary, uh, and I will actually provide uh, subscription information for the Apple Leaf at indivisiblepodcast.org. But uh, Swell and Harris, Leo Isola, um, thank you both for your, your leadership and uh, for everything that you're doing uh, in Wenatchee, and thanks for uh, coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for your interest. Yes, thank you for your interest and for taking this to a, a broader uh, audience to make them aware of how important it is to act locally. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thank you again to my guests, Renee Hopkins, Stephen Paolini, Ahmed Gaia, Suellen Harris, and Leo Sola. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.